0: I, uh, when Pastor Jeff said that he had a verse, there was a moment of concern that he was going to bring up a donkey talking. Um, <laughs> I, I am very pleased he went to Jude instead. <laughs> uh, tw- almost twenty years. Wow. I mean, I've I've only been in full time evangelistic ministry for nineteen. I mean, t- two thousand four. I think, is when I first handed out a gospel tract publicly, and, um, uh, and Jeff, you're one of my dearest friends, brother. Uh, f- <laughs> friend sticks with you at all times, and Pastor Jeff has proven that time and time again, year after year after year, and, and uh, uh, that he allows me to stand in his pulpit is a, a privilege I've never taken lightly, nor ever will, and and, and I'm very thankful, uh, thankful to the entire Kirkland family. Uh, they are family to us. Uh, love being a grandpa, even if at a distance. Um, and all of you, uh, it is always a joy to come down and spend time with you, and and take to the streets, and go to ball games and abortuaries and parks, and uh, walk and don't walk wherever that might be. And and uh, uh, that. Uh, that your church is so shepherded that you're not only encouraged to go out and proclaim the gospel, but your shepherds actually lead you in that effort. Um, you're nodding your heads. You know how blessed you are. And uh, and be in continual prayer uh, for your elders, all of them, and for their families. Uh, it, this is uncommon in American evangelicalism that... Uh, that pastors are not only encouraging the people to do what God has commanded every Christian to do, uh, but actually leading in that effort, that is that is rare. And God is uh, blessing this church abundantly in many ways. Uh, and one of them is the fact that uh, your shepherds, like true shepherds, lead from the front. They don't simply poke and prod the sheep from behind. They actually lead the sheep from the front, and and uh, and that is a great blessing. That's a great blessing. Uh, Pastor Jeff has asked me tonight to spend a little time in uh, preparation for our time of prayer to talk about answering the call to holiness. And, of course, that does include prayer. Um, open your Bibles, uh, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, uh, my time is limited, and I probably used too much time just fawning on you um, because I love you so much, Um, but time is limited, and so uh, this exposition is going to be very fast. Um, We're going to be somewhat singular in our focus. Uh, We're going to probably miss much that this wonderful passage has to teach us, Um, but I hope you're going to be edified tonight. I hope you'll be encouraged. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, God's Word tells us this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, the title of this evening's message is the call to holiness, and the word of God in both testaments, in both old and new, calls us to be holy as God is is holy. Peter is citing Old Testament scripture here in 1 Peter chapter 1. And our passage for this evening is a beautiful beautiful example of that clarion call to holiness. And as we look briefly, and again it will be brief, at this wonderful passage, we're going to learn that to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people, Christians, no one else, is numbered among his people, but Christians, must have prepared minds. We must have obedient hearts. We must have holy conduct, in a word, godliness. We must have a prayerful life. And all of that is undergirded, of course, uh, in the foundation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel once and daily believed and lived. Believed and lived. Uh, Don Curran is an itinerant minister, uh, evangelist, a missionary. I've, I've known him not as long as I've known your pastor, uh, but spent uh, some time with him in Norway doing ministry there and and uh, preaching in conferences there. And And he's been kind enough to write the foreword for a, a little book that I'm going to be publishing here in the next few weeks, and it's a study guide for J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, Um And uh, how many of you are familiar with J.C. Ryle and holiness? Yeah, his book, Holiness? Yes, of course. Uh, That's almost a rhetorical question, I believe, in a church like this. Uh, Of course you are familiar with that. But in his foreword, Don wrote the following, quote, "'Ours is a generation of indiscipline. There is a deficiency of regimen in the pursuit of true godliness. Modern believers want spirituality without spiritual formation.' But there is no shortcut to holiness. Sadly, what is most grievous is a contentment to live without it. There is a great need for the contemporary church to take heaven by storm, a need that does not despise prophesying and endures hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ can ill afford to leisurely meander any longer. For the day of reckoning is at hand. The call to holiness is conveyed in the scripture in terms of aggression. Such terms, to only mention a few, are resist steadfast in the faith, endure temptation, fight the good fight of faith, guard your heart with all diligence, run so you may attain, strive for the mastery, pursue holiness, and the violent take it. By force, end quote. Answering the call to holiness is the true believer's life's work. It is his aim, his goal, his desire, his hope. It is not, for the Christian, an attempt to earn God's love or to keep God's love. Rather, it is an effort founded upon genuine thankfulness to and a desired reciprocating love for God. For the love God has shown him through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ. The Christian truly wants to be like Jesus. He wants to be more like Jesus every day. It pains him when he falls short of God's glory. He wrestles with his own flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that victory is most certainly possible because Jesus died not only to free him from the penalty of sin, but also to free him from the power of the hold sin may have on his life. Christ did not only die to free us from the penalty of sin, but from the power that that sin may at any moment or for any season have hold of us. Yes, the Christian desperately wants to be holy as God is holy. His mission isn't to be perceived as holier than his brother. That's not his goal. His goal isn't to keep up with the Christian Joneses. His mission is to answer the call to holiness, to glorify his Father who is in heaven. And as a result of remembering the well-guarded salvation we have received through faith in Jesus Christ, and, and Peter spells that out for us in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1, And as a result of having and maintaining the right perspective regarding the most precious gift of salvation, which he outlines in verses 10 through 12, we ought to live in a certain way in response to that. We should be living in a certain way because God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We should answer and keep answering God's call to live holy lives for his glory. So let's begin our look and a brief look at that at four behaviors to which Peter calls us, starting with having a prepared mind. In this pursuit of holiness In answering this call to holiness, we need to have a prepared mind. Again, Peter writes in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated here as prepared is most literally translated as gird up or to raise up a tunic, tucking it into the belt to keep it out of the way while working or fighting. It's also used in the sense of bracing oneself with a view of heavy and active exertion. And Peter may have had Jesus' words in mind, which we find in Luke twelve thirty-five 35-36. Jesus said, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. The Christian is set apart by God and for God at regeneration and justification by the grace of God alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He or she is now a saint, a set-apart one. He or she is made holy. He or she does not make himself or herself holy. That is the salvific work of Almighty God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification also begins at regeneration. However, unlike regeneration, unlike justification, which are one-time acts of God, sanctification is not only immediate upon salvation and completed when we are glorified in the Lord's presence, but sanctification is also progressive. It is also ongoing. The Christian is sanctified at regeneration, being sanctified throughout his Christian life, and will one day be fully sanctified when he is with the Lord in glory. With that said and understood, no one lives a holy life by osmosis. You don't become more holy by simply hanging around holy people. Now granted, although you certainly are much better off in the presence of the godly than the ungodly, The sanctifying and progressive work of personal holiness is just that. It is work. It is work. And that work begins with the preparation of the mind. That's really where most of our battles, if not all of our battles in this life, begin and reside, and where the war is waged, it is waged in our minds. And with so many competing interests, not only for our time, But for our very thoughts, we must be proactive in the renewing of our minds, in taking every thought captive, and in dwelling on things above. And of course, the Apostle Paul spoke to all three, the renewing of the mind, taking every thought captive, and dwelling on things above, and as well taught and discipled as you are here, you probably already have in your mind the passages where we're going to go. All three of these passages are likely, again, familiar to most of you, but before you nod your head in agreement as you hear these scriptures, as maybe they've already come to mind, I want to encourage you to ask yourself if you simply know the verses or are you truly applying these verses in your life as a means of answering God's call to holiness or how often do we simply nod our head in agreement with God's word yep i believe that yep you're right pastor and then we're not actually applying them in our lives i uh, i would hazard a guess that i'm not only i'm not alone in that admission right of course Regarding the renewing of our mind, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1-2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation from worldly thinking to holy thinking, from worldly living to holy living, from conformity to the world to conformity to Christ's likeness, happens when one's mind is renewed. That's where it begins. It is from the Greek word here translated as transformed that we derive other English words such as metamorphosis. And for the sake of time I'm not going to paint the word picture likely already in your head when you think of the most familiar image of metamorphosis the caterpillar emerging from a cocoon the transformative change of one thing into another. And the Greek word here translated as renewal appears in only one other New Testament verse Titus 3:5 which reads He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So here we, we see a prime example of the synergistic work of sanctification in the life of the believer. Now, salvation is monergistic. God alone is working. We are merely the recipients of that salvation. All we bring to the table when it comes to our salvation is the sin that makes that salvation necessary. But sanctification, progressive sanctification, is a synergistic work. It is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it is a work of man as he works out his salvation with fear and trembling, and he works to grow in likeness. That work is cooperative between the believer and the Holy Spirit who indwells him. Paul's emphasis in Romans 12.2 is the spiritual work of the Christian in his or her ongoing renewal of the mind. Yet in Titus three five, Paul focuses his attention on the Holy Spirit's work of renewal in concert with his regenerative work in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit regenerates a person, causing him or her to be born again. And then the Christian, empowered by the now indwelling Holy Spirit, works toward proving that which is good and acceptable and perfect by and through the renewal of his mind. And how do we renew our minds? Well, one way is rejecting conformity to the world. We should actively and continually reject any and every temptation to be conformed to the world's behaviors and beliefs when those behaviors and beliefs run contrary to the only perfect source of instruction for faith and practice, the God breathed Word of God. Now, of course, you know what this means. You must know the book. You've got to know the book. And to do that, you must spend more time in the Word of God than on social media. That's an easy one to poke at. You must spend more time in the Word of God than you do watching football, baseball, hockey, or dare I say, even soccer. Now, ready for this, though? You should also spend more time in the Word of God than you do in books about the Word of God. Now, I am not at all denigrated, denigrating solid Bible teachers who are truly a gift to the Bride of Christ. I benefit much from the writing of theologians, particularly dead guys. What I've learned about the writings of dead guys is their theology never changes. So I don't have to worry about that as I'm reading what they write. But none of your favorite writers after the first century AD were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write their books. No author outside of Scripture, whether dead or alive, has ever written anything for your consideration that should be given more consideration than the Bible. We need to be in the book. We shouldn't just be reading what people tell us we should be believing or doing about the book. We should actually be in the book. Another way to prepare your mind for the pursuit of holiness is to be proactive in taking every thought captive. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, Paul wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh." but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. and We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. The Greek word translated in 2 Corinthians 10.5 has uh, warfare in view. In, in addition to taking captive The word can also be translated as to subdue or ensnare. Warfare is difficult. Warfare is costly. Warfare is sacrificial. It involves both voluntary and involuntary personal deprivation. Warfare is never described and should never be described as fun. Spiritual warfare is no different. It's hard and sometimes metaphorically bloody. The destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations, punishing all disobedience. Does that sound like a good time to you? Well, Christian, tough. Because that's the war we are in. And if you want to answer the call to holiness, then you need to get into the fight and stay there the rest of your natural days for the glory of Christ. Having a prepared mind, a mind prepared to answer God's call to a holy life involves the renewal of your mind, taking every thought captive, and lastly, dwelling on things above. Dwelling on things above. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 5 through 9, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Yep. So often when people speak to others about maybe anxiety or depression or worry or fear, They're quick to turn to Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Rightly so. Uh, It has been a soothing balm in my life many, many times. But we we cut ourselves short. We cut ourselves off short of really being blessed by that passage. When we leave out verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The command to not be anxious is preceded by the great promise that the Lord is near. What more motivation do we need to not obey that, that clarion call to not be anxious? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, praiseworthy, what Paul is not necessarily calling Christians to do here in this passage is, is trying to find things in the world or even other people that fall into these categories. Now, while we can find contemporary examples of things or people we can categorize in these ways, and while in those instances we can have cause to worship God as a result, Paul is calling Christians to set their sights so much higher, much higher. Paul is calling the Philippians in this passage to look to Christ, to look to Christ. Jesus is true. Jesus is honorable, right, pure, lovely. Jesus is of good repute. Jesus is excellent and praiseworthy. He is so perfectly so, and perfectly so in many other ways and categories. Do you want to prepare your mind to answer the call to holiness? Then look unto Christ. Keep your eyes on him. Dwell on Christ. I think many Christians, and I know there have been times when this has been true, certainly about me. Many Christians who fall into d- discouragement, even depression, as they recognize they that they are not as holy as they ought to be or want to be. Because they spend too much time looking in the mirror and not enough time looking to Christ, looking to his cross, looking to his finished work. We spend way too much time looking in the mirror and sometimes in doing so we think too highly of ourselves. We look in the mirror and we we fail to see Christ because our view of him is obscured by the person in the mirror. We can also look in the mirror and dwell on how sinful and incapable and unworthy we are now that's not necessarily a bad thing there's no power of positive thinking message coming your way trust me but when we stay there when we wallow in that mire of self-pity we in effect relegate the shed blood of christ and his sacrifice as a common and unsufficient thing we trample underfoot The blood Christ shed for the remission of sins. We subconsciously say to ourselves, what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection is insufficient to cover, to wash away this sin or that sin. I not only deserve to be punished, but I don't think God is punishing me enough. So I'll do it myself, and I'll stare in the mirror to do it. Worse still, if that isn't bad enough. Sometimes when we look in the mirror... We do so because Jesus simply isn't enough. We're discontent with our lot and discontent with our Lord. We want more and we look into the mirror to grumble and complain. Brothers and sisters, if this is you, repent of these things. Repent and dwell on things above. Repent and renew your mind, repent. Take every thought captive. Repent and dwell on Christ. Look to Christ you will be all the more prepared to answer God's call to holiness. Look to Christ. Now, in order to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people must have prepared minds. They also must have obedient hearts and holy conduct. These two go hand in hand. Peter writes in verses 14 to 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, of course, the Greek word translated as obedient in verse 14 means just what it says. To be obedient is to be submissive and compliant. And this obedience is typically almost always in response to someone speaking. Obedience is following orders. It's following orders. When when we think of our interaction with a supervisor at work, we understand that we're supposed to follow orders. We understand that there are consequences for not doing that. When I was a deputy sheriff, I mean, thinking as a, as a young kid, uh, 23, 24 years old in the sheriff's academy, knowing very well what was going to happen if I did not follow orders and carried that through a 20-year career. Children who are well-disciplined understand that there are consequences for not following orders. We are supposed to live lives in obedience, yet even for those of us who truly know Christ, we find it so difficult to apply that same standard that we apply in every other area of our life to our relationship to our king. We are to obey orders. So how do we obey? How do we know when it comes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what it means and what it looks like to obey him. Yes, God God has written his law on our hearts. And yes, he has given each of us a conscience, the innate ability to discern what is right and wrong, according to God's perfect moral standard. But in a metaphysical sense, the study of the way things are and the way things ought to be where do we go to learn what God says regarding how to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? At the risk of sounding like a broken re- record, brothers and sisters, it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. With that in mind, listen to the voice of God. Psalm 119.57, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. Psalm 119, 101. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. John 8, 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John 14, 15, again, Christ speaking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A little later in John 14, verses 23 to 24, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. How will you know if you have an obedient heart? How will you know if you are not obeying God as you should? Well, it won't be in the self-righteous effort of keeping the law. Without the Word of God, which includes Christ's expansion of the basic principles of these Ten Commandments, i.e. don't look with lust and don't hate, you wouldn't know what should motivate you to keep the law. You wouldn't know that everything that is not done in faith, including keeping the law, is sin. Paul writing to the Romans in 14.23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because it's eating is not from faith. And whatever, whatever is not from faith is sin. Not just eating, folks. Not just eating or not eating. But whatever is not from faith is sin. And in addition to hearing the voice of God, and God only speaks to his people today in and through his word, In order to know what and how you must obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you also need to live a life of applied obedience. Now hear me, I'm I'm not telling you to live a certain way in order to earn or deserve or certainly not to keep God's love. I'm telling you that God commands you to live a certain way as an outpouring of thankfulness and love for him because he first loved you, Loved you enough to save you by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Any thought or overture toward answering God's call to holiness without actively engaging in applied obedience is just wishful thinking. And not even honest wishful thinking. Why? Because in the end we do what we care about. We all do what we care about. It doesn't really matter what we say about it. We all do what we care about. I could tell Maria over and over and over again, day after day, I love you. But if the way I treat her, if the way I shepherd her, if the way I lead her is not a reflection of what I just said, I don't actually love her because I do what I care about. We don't do the things that we don't care about. We do what we care about. We can pontificate all we want, that we want to be more like Christ, that we want to live godly, holy lives that are pleasing to the Lord. In the end, however, the extent to which we want to live holy lives will be an outworking of the adage that we do what we care about. And what so often divides our attention, loyalty, and love? Peter continues in verse 14 with these words, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Our former lusts, our ignorance, our old and bad habits, our sin can from time to time rear their ugly heads. And while Christ died to free us from the penalty of sin as well as from the power of sin, we remain for now in these sin-stained earthen vessels. The obedient heart is one that having been changed by God from stone to flesh, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, seeks daily and habitually to flee the sin he or she once loved. Not only should the Christian want to put off sin, but he or she also wants to put on Christ. If all we want to do is put off sin, then we are just legalists. That's all we are. If all we want to do is put off sin, then all we're interested in is self-improvement, self-glorification. The Christian not only wants to put off sin, but wants to put on Christ. Wants to look like Christ, sound like Christ, think like Christ, act like Christ. In Colossians 3, 1-4, we read, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, <clears throat> not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put off sin. Put on Jesus Christ. By putting off sin and putting on Christ, we will be able to answer the call to holiness. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Verses 15 to 16. Now, we will exude holy conduct. We should, as followers of Christ, we should exude holy conduct. We will live godly lives, living in such a way that the people around us can expect we will do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, for the glory of Christ. Yes, in order to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people, Christians, must have prepared minds, must have obedient hearts, and holy conduct, godliness. Lastly, in order to answer God's call, To live holy lives, we must be in regular communication with him. We must live a prayerful life. What we're here to do tonight is an outworking of that. We are to live a prayerful life. Peter writes in verse 17, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time, of your stay on earth. Now Peter continues this thematic element of conduct as he addresses our next point regarding answering the call to holiness, the prayerful life. Peter writes, "If you address as father." Now the Greek word translated here as address appears some thirty times in the New Testament, and, and here are some examples in Acts two uh, two twenty one. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in the dramatic and miraculous scene... Oh, I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you for that, dear. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. In the dramatic and miraculous scene of a wary Ananias, healing Saul of Tarsus and then prophesying over him, we read in Acts twenty-two sixteen. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Oh, good, I can go for two or three more hours now. <laughs> in, in Romans, that is actually much better, thank you. In Romans ten twelve, we read, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. In addition to the sense of addressing God in prayer, there's also the sense of addressing him by name and or his title. In Acts 1, as the apostles gathered to determine who would replace Judas as an apostle, we read in verse 23, so they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. When the Roman centurion was instructed by the angel to send men to Joppa to summon Peter, we read in Acts 10.5, Now, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. Now, most commentators I read see Peter's use of the word address in the sense of calling out to the Father in prayer. And there are those who read it as addressing God as the paternal ruler of the universe. I think it's clear, however, based on the context, that Peter has in mind his readers engaging in prayer. And this fits what Paul writes in Ephesians 6. He finishes the armor of God with a call to pray. Now the word if, in verse 17, does not express a sense of doubt or bringing into question whether Peter's readers pray. Rather, Peter uses the word in the sense of sins. Uh, almost as a foregone conclusion that those who would address God as Father are those who call upon their Father in heaven in prayer. Christians pray. That's what Christians do. It's part of our DNA. We are gathered here this evening in part to do just that, to pray. There can be no real and meaningful Christ-likeness apart from prayer. Jesus was the God-man of prayer. Yes, Jesus prayed before meals, which in his case, on at least a couple of occasions, resulted in the miraculous feeding of tens of thousands of people. However, Jesus was the epitome of obedience to the biblical mandate to pray without ceasing. Jesus prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead. He prayed aloud. He prayed in silence. He prayed in public. He prayed in private. He spent entire nights forfeiting all sleep to commune with his Father in prayer. Jesus not only prayed for his apostles, but he prayed for all those who believe the gospel because of the apostles' teaching. He prayed for us. He prayed for us. John 17, verses 20 to 24. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see My glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus was perfectly dedicated and devoted to prayer. Well, and look, if you struggle at all with assurance, just as a parenthetical here, if you struggle at all with assurance in any way, brother or sister, think about what Jesus prays here. Father, I desire that they also, us, that they also whom you have given me, us, Be with me where I am. Could Jesus pray anything short of a perfect prayer? Can God the Father do anything short of answering prayer perfectly? The Son of God prayed to God the Father that we will one day be with him where he is. How can that not happen? Is there any circumstance or situation where that prayer is not answered, where that prayer is not fulfilled? No matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult the time or season, you are going to heaven. Because Jesus asked the Father for that. And the Father is going to give the Son exactly what he asked for. And he intercedes for us perpetually. We're going to heaven. If we are in Christ, we're going to heaven. That should give you all the assurance you need. Now, of course, it was the Apostle Paul who exhorted the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. And if we look at the men and women most used of God in the early church and throughout church history, they were all people of prayer, not occasional prayer, but rather prayer as a way of life. And when you think of those godly men and women of the last hundred years who have done great things for the kingdom in pulpits and in unnamed villages, an intimate look at their lives would likely reveal vibrant prayer lives. Uh, Some of them, at times, crying out to God only the words, I will not deny you today. But praying with such fervency and depth and belief and faith that that prayer was as powerful as if they prayed for hours but they were people of prayer. Peter tells his readers people of prayer to conduct themselves in fear during their time on earth. Fear, reverence, awe, obedience, love, fear of God. Is anyone really in awe of God or have a a reverential fear of God who does not address him as father and go to him in prayer like a child clinging to his or her father? Can you, make, can you even make such a case from the Word of God? I don't think so. As we've seen during our brief time here in this passage, to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people must have prepared minds, obedient hearts, holy conduct, godliness, and a prayerful life. And of course, undergirding all of this is the foundation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, Peter ends his call to holiness this way in verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. What we've considered this evening, which is answering God's call to holiness, is only possible for those redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who came to die for his people. Jesus Christ, the eternal Second person of the one and only triune God who had, has been, and is with the Father through whom all things were created. The one who died the death he did not deserve to take upon himself the punishment each of us rightly deserves for our sins against God forever defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. That is our motivation to holiness. To answer the call to holiness. God the Father raised God the Son from the dead and bestowed upon him glory. Why? at least according to this passage here, in part, so that our faith and our hope are in God. There is no other way to have authentic faith in God but through faith in Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the way and the truth and the life. If we truly belong to Christ, then our hearts desire, as imperfect as we all are, is to live holy lives pleasing to our Father in heaven. And God has provided every one of us and has provided for us uh, His precious uh, blood-bought people, both the ways and the means to do that. So may we all, therefore, answer God's call to holiness for His glory. Amen.